HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Peter Liam. We'll talk to Peter about champagne and more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Peter Liam is an award-winning author, writer, wine critic, educator, and truly one of the world's great champagne experts. Peter is the author of Champagne, the essential guide to the wines, producers, and terroirs of the iconic region. Peter oversees ChampagneGuide.net, an online comprehensive guide to the wines and producers of Champagne. He is the co-founder, co-creator of Lafette du Champagne, and is a prolific deep-sea diver. Peter has brought himself closer to the region he loves, living in Champaign for over 15 years, and comes back to the U.S. every now and then. Peter, welcome back to the Grape Nation. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. I just want to mention that you last joined us on the podcast in 2017. When I think about the last time I spoke to you, it doesn't seem like over four years ago. (laughs) And that was early in our podcast. So I thank you now for coming on. And I thank you then for sort of a fledgling podcast, putting some (laughs) faith into it and coming on. So (laughs) thank you. We're talking to Peter remotely via Zencaster. Peter, where are you right now? Actually, I am here in New York at the moment. Uh, okay. All right. So I mentioned in the intro that you live in Champaign, and obviously you also come back to the U.S. Um, don't spend a ton of time, but tell us why you ultimately made Champagne your home. And for me, as a curiosity, why not Germany or Spain? <laughs> and, and how do you split your time? 
Yeah, well, so, you know, I've been in the wine trade since, uh, since 1996. Um, and, um, you know, I guess just getting involved with champagne, well, certainly champagne was a very different place and, and it was a very different environment uh, back in the 90s. And, of course, I was introduced to champagne like anybody else uh, in, in the wine trade, uh, you know, through major names and, and uh, you know, just tr- trying to taste as much as I possibly could. Uh, in, in the late 90s and, you know, early 2000s, this was a period of tremendous change in champagne. And, and so I, I began going to the region in 1997. Uh, that, that was my first trip there. And, and what struck me immediately was, was uh, that the things that I was seeing on the ground were completely different than things that I was reading in books or even in magazines. Uh, you know, it's, um, nobody was talking about this stuff. And, and you know, it had, had stuff, you know, to do with, with viticulture and terroir and, you know, small producers that you never heard of and, and all, all this this kind of thing that we take for granted now, but in 1997, this was completely, you know, this was, I mean, to, to somebody in an export market, this was completely new, new, to, new territory. Right. And so, so that became very interesting. And I kept going back to Champagne, you know, every year, uh, you know, once or twice a year. And, um, and that's, even though I was working with the wines of the world and I was, I, I had a deep interest in, in, you know, many areas uh, um, at the time, you know, I was working a lot with Burgundy. I was very heavily involved with Riesling, you know, in Germany and Austria and Alsace. And but, but I think just this whole kind of story of Champagne, you know, and and um, seeing how rapidly the region and the Appalachian was changing, that um, that really made me want to spend more time there. And so. The- yeah, it Go got ahead. to a point where you know going going there once or twice a year just wasn't enough, and so uh, by the end of two thousand six, I had you know made plans to to really relocate uh, you know to to France, and um, and I made my home in, in the Champagne region. And I any any regrets? Months. Not sooner. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it was everything's a product of circumstance. Yeah. Right, and, and certainly moving from one country to another is, is never an, an easy task. So no. it's uh, it's all right. All right. So let me you you mentioned a lot of areas and topics that I think we're going to get into some mm-hmm. in you know some depth depth. Let me frame our conversation by asking you this: You said you've been traveling to Champagne since '97, which is you know a substantial amount of time. And probably as long or more than anyone. Um, let's get into it a little. Can you articulate some of those changes you refer to, significant ones, and even the subtle ones, you know, that you've witnessed through the years? I mean, and a bigger question is: Has Champagne reexamined itself, and is there a new paradigm there? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big question, Peter. Yeah, but I, I trust in you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this I, this is really the story of of contemporary Champagne. You know, uh, um, the short answer is is absolutely yes. At the time, I think you know, twenty five years ago, uh, Champagne. I mean, on. on from, from all sides, from from the producer side, from the from the consumer side, from the you know wine professional side, uh, uh, champagne. The way that we treated champagne was was very different. Um, you know, we haven't historically 
well, when I say historically, that's like the last 50 years, right? Uh, we haven't always thought about champagne as a wine. Uh, you know, champagne has has been, oh, you know, more about branding, more about, uh, you know, a product of, of celebration, uh, you, know, uh, you know, something you, you have on your birthday. And, and you know, it's it, it all, all of this stuff like like helps to sell champagne, but it, it kind of detracts from, from its qualities as a wine. Yeah? And, and for me, you know, I, I always say that, that everything that's going on right now in champagne is really symptomatic of, of a change in the way that, uh, that, that we've viewed it. So it's, it's about us actually treating champagne as a real wine now. And so uh, along with that come up, come up all these other questions that we ask of any other wine, right? We talk about viticulture, we talk about vinification, we talk about terroir, we talk about all, all these, these other things. And, and, and that's just natural when, when you talk about a wine and a wine region and, and all of this. In the past, we didn't talk about that so much with champagne. And so champagne was really just about brand. It was uh, you know, like you would go to champagne and you know, you would talk about the champagne process uh, and, and, you know, it was thought that, or not thought, it was said uh, that, that, uh, you know, it was Lee's aging and then the champagne process that really gave the wine its identity, which, you know, I think even back then winemakers didn't believe, but that's what they would tell us as consumers. Um, and so it was really around, you know, around the mid nineties that, that the, the beginnings of the conversation really started to to pick up steam, where you had these producers, uh, you had these uh, these winemakers in Champagne really starting to question this paradigm or the paradigm that that we were in, right? And and starting to uh, it, there was kind of a new generation who, uh, you know, for one they were drinking other wines of the world, um, which hasn't always been the case, you know, back. Even even just a short time ago, you know, France was was very very provincial, and uh, and oftentimes, uh, you know, the previous generation would just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be familiar with with wine regions even within their own country, and um, but you know, you had this new generation who who were not only drinking wines and visiting other regions, but you know, maybe had worked, had gone to school. Uh, you know, elsewhere had you know worked uh, you know internships, uh, sometimes even abroad, uh, you know, in, in the New World or, or whatever, uh, or elsewhere in Europe, and and so so they were coming back and they were starting to to ask questions about champagne in the same way that that other people in the in the wine world were were asking questions, right? So that prompted, yeah, that that prompted a sort of, of re-examination of, of what are we doing here in Champagne and what does, what does Champagne even mean, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, so, um, um, you know, at first you had these pioneers. Everyone talks about Anselm Salos, of course, right? right? You know, uh, uh, I mean, clearly he's like this godfather of, of you know, of, right. of this, this whole, like, this, this whole thing. But, and, and then, you know, you've got, you have, uh, you know, other people like Francis Egli, uh, you know, who, who, um, Know, who, who started you know, quite early. Um, but then, you know, in the mid nineties, uh, you know, people like, 
people that influenced me were, you know, people like Pascal Agrippar, uh, Pierre Lermondier of Lermondier Bernier, um, uh, Laurent Champ of Vilmar, um, you know, and and so these conversations with them really made me think about Champagne in a very different way. And then shortly after this, then you have like the beginning of the 2000s, where you have another generation coming in who, and here's where it really starts to pick up steam. Um, um, so, uh, you know, people like Jérôme Prévost, uh, uh, Fouette de Sorbet, you know, Cédric Bouchard, um, all, of, all of these guys started all around the same time, around like 2000, you know, and um, a little bit later, uh, you know, like Raphael Beresh, you know, came on to, uh, he joined his, his family was already making excellent wines, but, you know, he, he uh, rejoined the estate in 2004, uh, you know, Alex Charton uh, in 2006. And, and so you have this, you know, this other generation you know, coming in, which was very exciting. And, and he, then at this point, it sort of gained this critical mass where you really start to see the region changing. Yeah. And also, to, it's it's not just about production. It's about uh, you know, it, it was about what was going on in export markets as well. Um, you know, most notably in the United States, uh, you know, you had grower champagne being imported already. Right? And Kermit Lynch already, you know, I was working with Paul Barra and and uh, um, Terry Thies. Well, yeah, and so you know, other people were working with with like with individual producers. Terry Teese was the first to really come out and say, "Here, I here is a portfolio of champagnes that you've never heard of." Right. You know, and and that was really powerful. That that was that was game changing. Uh, right. And and so um, yeah, and so you know, even though he wasn't the first, you know, to import grower champagne, I think you know, he he did the most to to really uh, get the conversation going here in the States. Right. And, and that had an effect, you know, even back in Champagne because, you know, the U.S. is a major Champagne market. Um, you know, uh, it, it had an effect in other, uh, in other export markets, you know, where people are, you know, people are like, oh, you know, what's going on here? Uh, you know, maybe we need to, we need to pay attention to this too. Um, but then, um, uh, I think you know that encouraged this this kind of newer generation to uh, uh, you know to start going in their own direction and and you know, so seeing, that, seeing that there there was a, there were markets interested in, in what they were doing. It's fair to say, based on what you're saying, in the early 2000s, that was really the launch. I don't know the beginning of the grower champagne market because you refer to Salos, who was sort of older school but new thinking, and then other makers that you know were of a newer generation, and then a category of growers. Is that fair to assess it that way? Yeah, I mean broadly, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, back when I started in the wine trade, you know, in the mid nineties, um, there were, you know, we did see a few, a few champagne growers, um, but they were, you know, nobody really knew who they were. Um, they, they were definitely a hand sell, uh, you know, um, I mean, I remember, you know, working in California, my, my sales rep for Salos would come in with a bag 
with, with the entire range <laughs> and, you know, want to take me to dinner <laughs> so, so that I could taste these wines. And, where are you know, they now, right? On them. <laughs> yeah, where are they now? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Burgundy's well, similar, too, you know. It's just I available mean, and cheaper, you know. Absolutely. You know, I mean, back then, you know, we could drink all the Burgundy that we wanted. And it's, uh, you know, and that's, that's certainly changed. So tell me something about grower champagne. A couple of things, you know, take a, a few seconds to, you know, describe or define what it is. But the question is, these growers that are now making champagne, and you'll define what and how they do it, they were growing and selling to the large houses. They weren't bottling for themselves. It depends. So, um, so yeah, the distinction that we make, you know, between like growers and houses, um, basically we think about grower champagne. I mean, think things are changing and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but, um, but you know, when, when we think about grower champagne, we think about, uh, champagne being made by the same people who grew the grapes, right? which is not always the case, you know, champagne, historically champagne has been the structure of, of, uh, of the champagne industry has, has been one, uh, that's, that's been very multi-tiered, right? So you have, you have people who own vineyards and who, who, you know, farm the land and they grow grapes. They might make some wine. They might not, they might sell, just sell their grapes to negociants, uh, you know, um, people who are buying, you know, buying grapes and making wine. Uh, and, um, and that's, that's always been very lucrative, right? Um, because your overhead is much less if you're not making wine, you know, you're, you're just farming and then you grow these grapes, you sell them off and, you know, and that's, that's very good business. Um, so then negociants houses, uh, you know, they, they would purchase, they might have vineyards of their own, but then they, uh, you know, they, will also buy, um, buy grapes from, from growers and then, you know, make, like blend these together and, you know, make, make their wines. I mean, this, this has existed in, in Champagne, you know, for right. a very, very long time, for hundreds of years. Uh, so there have been certain periods in Champagne's history where, uh, economically, you know, this has kind of broken down like, uh, like, a hundred years ago, uh, or 120 years ago now, uh, you know, beginning of the, of the 20th century, um, you know, there, there was, um, um, there was a time of real economic difficulty where growers were sort of unable to sell their grapes to, uh, like negociants, just, they, they didn't want to buy because, uh, you know, the market was down, um, you know, they had too much wine in their cellars, whatever. Right. So, so some growers started to produce their own wine. Uh, others sort of banded together to create cooperatives. And, you know, this is sort of the period where you see the emergence of cooperatives in, in Champagne, um, uh, you know, and things like that. Uh, you know, later on after the war, after, well, uh, after both wars. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was a period certainly after the first war. And then, um, and then again, you know, in the 40s and 50s after the second war, uh, you, you see a lot of growers, again, starting to make their own wines um, because they had difficulty selling grapes, right? Right. So, so in fact, uh, you know, a lot of these estates that, that were new to us 20 years ago, right. They had been making wine for a very long time. Like they, they didn't just start, you know, some, some of them had, had 
just recently right. started, but most of them, you know, had this family tradition for several generations of already producing champagne. It's just that their wines were being sold locally and, you know, we right. in export markets uh, didn't really have access to them. So, so people, people, you know, when you hear that, you know, you think, well, the grower is smaller, you know, maybe he's paying more attention to viticulture. Um, I, I, I don't think this would be true, but does size have anything to do with quality? Not necessarily, right? Yeah, this is something that I always have, have a problem with. Uh, you know, it's like today in in sort of whatever popular wine culture, it's you know, it's become it's become this sort of narrative that uh, that smaller is automatically better. You know, it's uh, right. So, you know, we, we we talk about small growers and big houses. You know, and and th those words are very loaded. They they have implications, and uh, and I, I really fight against this all the time. You know, it's, um, I certainly, I think size has nothing to do with quality. Uh, I think that, um, I think it's, it's a little bit dangerous and a little bit misleading, you know, to, to think about, you know, in, in these, you know, to think about these, these terms in that way, you know, like small growers versus big houses. And that's something that I, I deliberately avoid, like in La Fête du Champagne, you know, for example, uh, um, you know, Daniel right. and I, from, from the very beginning, we have never uh, separated growers and houses. Uh, we, and that was very deliberate. Uh, I wanted to do that, um, you know, very deliberately. Meaning making sure there's representation of everyone. Well, and not even setting up, it's, it's not even a comparison or contest or, you know, it's, it's, the I mean, best I, makers. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, in wines that are interesting and wines that have right. something to say and wines that are of high quality. Yeah. And, and I really don't care if you're a grower or a house. I don't care if you're RM or NM or if you're, you know, if you're big or just small tell everyone or, RM and NM well, negotiate so, and, you know, quick definition. Yeah. So, uh, so on, on every bottle of champagne, well, let's say every champagne producer is, is assigned a status, right? Depending on it's, basically your business structure. So an RM means that you are producing wine, but you're producing wine almost exclusively from, from your own grapes. Um, there's this 5%, you know, kind of like, uh, so it's little, little equal to a state grown in a way. Yeah. It's basically a state grown. Right. Uh, that's what RM is. NM means that, that you have the ability to purchase grapes. And some people would think, well, how do you control everything and your wine can't be that good? False, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think uh, you know, slowly in the market, um, people are kind of losing this attachment to RM. Um, you know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, RM was a really big deal among, like, consumers and wine professionals, you know. Uh, uh, I, I, it was, it was, it was a little bit misguided and, and you know, a little bit misleading. Um, you know, people automatically thought that RM was a sign of quality and it's really not. Uh, I mean, even, you know, as early as like, I mean, even 20 years ago, I remember, uh, Pierre Larmandier was, was very adamant about this. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he, he would always say grower champagne is not a category. 
That's and fair. I loved that because, you know, I would yeah. be in the vineyards with him. I mean, he is like militantly biodynamic, you know, and, and he's, I mean, he's, uh, you know, just as a winemaker and wine grower, I mean, you know, he's working at the highest levels. But, you know, we would be out in the, in, in the vines and he would, you know, point to a vineyard next to him and say, you know, look at my neighbor. This guy is, you know, he's a, he's an RM. He's a small family run grower, you know, and whatever, you know, the, like the vineyards look like the surface of the moon, you know, it's like pesticides, mm. herbicides, you know, he's, he's like, you know, there's, what, what's what's so great about that? Like, you know, like, just because you're a grower doesn't mean, you know, doesn't right. doesn't have any implications at all, uh, um, you know, in terms of quality. Right. Well, listen, Champagne is a tough place to grow grapes. I mean, the weather isn't great. You know, there's all kinds of mildew, downy mildew. I mean, requires treatments. Some people refrain from. Some people treat. Um, you mentioned earlier champagne. There's always been a focus on the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are seeing a shift to the vineyards. I mean, can you tell us about some of the improvements? You know, in viticulture, I, you know, I think things are going in the right direction. You know, there's more discussion of viticulture, which alone is a good thing. I mean, by far. It's uh, you know, certainly viticulture is the number one topic in Champagne today, uh, and I mean, and, and it's it's not just the avant garde. It's not just you know the great growers that that we know and love. Um, it's the Appalachian as a whole. It's it's the region as a whole, and and so it, it's not only the, you know, uh, it, it's not really it's not only the the like cutting edge growers. It's it's actually initiatives coming down from the CIVC, uh, which is sort of the governing body of Champagne, you know, trying to trying to move the region forward, and it's it's actually been very successful over the last twenty years now. And so, you know, Champagne it's always had quite a bad reputation as far as viticulture goes, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, especially by the end of the twentieth century. You know, you went to Champagne and the vineyards looked pretty bad. You know, and, <laughs> like the moon, you said. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and so, so, I mean, Champagne by, was by no means the only wine region in, in Europe that looked that way. I mean, right. I mean e- even today, like if you travel around Europe, it's, you know, it, it's not like everybody is, is organic and biodynamic and has these beautiful vineyards. Um, in, in fact, they're, uh, you know, in fact, uh, Champagne, I don't even think is necessarily the, the worst looking place, but that doesn't even matter because, right, it's not about comparison. It's about, you know, what, what are you, what are you actually right. doing? And so it was early in the 2000s that uh, the CIBC, uh, you know, as I said, you know, the governing body of Champagne, they, they kind of set out these initiatives to, um, they wanted to move the region forward, but it's, it's, it's hard when you have, you know, 4,000 growers and you know, <laughs> 4,000 wine producing growers and, you know, like 200 or 300 negociants and, you know, everybody has different ideas. Everybody, you know, it's, it's like herding cats, right? So, uh, <laughs> but they, they, they've, they've actually been very successful, you know, in, and so, um, um, you know, in they they point they they point to all sorts of things, right? Uh, reduction of herbicides, reduction of pesticides, but then also what's really interesting is that they've been working on sort of overall carbon footprint and you know uh, other issues of sustainability. So um, 
So, you know, addressing things like like recycling and waste management and, and water recycling and industrial waste and, and all of this stuff. And, and you know, yes. Is the buy-in buy good? I mean, is the – when you – Look at the percentage of participation. Yeah, I'm sure it's not it's, where it should be, but I mean, do you see the trend going in the right direction? I mean, it's definitely slow, and it's you know certainly more needs to be done, and uh, uh, you know, and 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 all that. I mean, you can criticize it all you want, but if you look at data, uh, you know, over the last fifteen years, you know, they point to things like like carbon footprint per bottle. I don't know how exactly how they measured this, but you know they say there's been a, there's been a twenty percent reduction, right? Uh, in things like like uh, industrial waste, uh, you know, treatment, recycling, um, you know, there's right. been a ninety percent, uh, you know, like or now let's say ninety percent of, of of this you know is being treated and recycled. Um, uh, like um, phytosanitary products like when you talk about like fertilizers and and right. uh, you know things uh you know f um you know these sort of things that we're putting in into the the vineyards and the soils you know we've seen a 50 percent reduction in that over the last 15 years and and so i mean that's encouraging but then you know they have these goals um you know they're they're looking at actually we're you know we're now in 2022 uh they're looking at absolutely zero herbicides in the region by 2025, which is not wow, that far that's away. Wow, so close. No, and, not at all. And they're actually on track to meet that goal, which is amazing. You know? And I, I don't want to get too nerdy, but the treatments that herbicides addressed, they're available and effective. It's just getting people to buy in. Yeah, it's uh, it's teaching people, you know, alternative methods. Um, it's it's making people, you know, aware of of what these things are doing to soils and, and giving right. them incentives. You know, and right. and obviously it's easier with the new generation. You know, there right. there are there are certainly uh, you know certainly older growers are more resistant, and then their sons or daughters take over, and it becomes the task becomes easier. Right. Because their know, kids are running around, you know, the vineyards yeah. or the vines. Yeah. And, yeah. So in, in a similar vein, um, I wanted you to discuss um, climate change, which has – it's a broad term, but it has an effect on everything we just discussed. Um, everything I read that champagne is affected – um, by the changes in climate, um, you know, it's more prevalent there than other, you know, wine regions. Um, what are, what are, you know, what are the effects? I mean, is it bud break, early harvesting, uh, yeah, you know, that you, type of stuff? And is it being addressed properly? So, you know, Champagne being, uh, being a marginal wine region, um, you know, historically Champagne has been really sort of at the northern limits of, of grape growing. France, so uh, you know northern regions, limits geographically, uh, just in terms of climate. Climate, okay. So, so uh, uh, you know, especially like prior to the nineteen seventies, or let's say prior to the nineteen eighties, um, when the climate was very different, uh, you know, Champagne would have like maybe three good vintages out of ten. Um, Jesus. 
You know, and 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 this is this is why you know the reserve program exists, and this is why. Right. I mean, this is something Champagne has always struggled with, uh, you know, in, forever, and um, and so I think that you know when when you see when you look at wine regions that are near the edges, you feel the effects of climate change more, right? Um, just because there's a more drastic difference. So so you know you look at like Germany, you know, like the Mosul, or you know you look at. You know, and, and any any wide regions that that you know sort of like lie at the fringes, and Champagne is certainly one of those. And so, uh, you know, looking at the last thirty or forty years, I mean, there's no question that that you know climate change is real. I mean, if if you're deny if you're still denying it at this point, then I don't know what to <laughs> tell you. Uh, but um, and it's brought it's brought. Uh, entirely different conditions and it's it really changed growing seasons and changed threats and so today what we're seeing really is that um winters tend to be milder so there's there's in general you know there's there's less less frost there's or during the winter there's less of a freeze or less of really like a hard freeze does that help you know kill mildews and the uh, no, absence fact, of that or not uh, really? in fact it's not good um, a milder winter is not good because um, uh, in the past there there are like various organisms. Uh, you know there there could be um, um, you know there there uh, there could be organisms that would normally be killed by the cold weather, uh, ah. killed killed by a freeze in the past that right. now nowadays are surviving through the winter. Mm. So that's I mean that's one consideration of you know. Um, but regardless, winters tend to be milder now. Um, and then what's, what's really pernicious is that we're seeing this burst of warm weather quite early on in the year. So it can sometimes be as early as February. Uh, okay. you know, usually it's like March, uh, in the beginning of April. Um, and so it's great for us as humans because, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting right. out of my backyard in a t-shirt in March, <laughs> but... <Right. laughs> But uh, in fact, in terms of vineyards, you know, this is this is a real problem because that accelerates growth at the beginning of the season. And um, and Champagne is always susceptible to frost all the way up until like June and sometimes even July. So what happens is that we have this this, uh, you know, this this period of accelerated growth in the spring and that that won't last. It can't last. And so then when the frosts come, the frosts, uh, there's, there's more growth to be damaged. So the, the, the effects of the frosts are, are harder. Like potential bud break and development yeah. of the plant yeah. and all that Yeah, stuff, the buds right? are farther along. Uh, you know, they're, they're more susceptible because to they're Because of the early warmer weather. Exactly. Due to exactly. global climate change, right? Yeah. And okay. then along, you know... Uh, also, um, climate change brings more extremes. Right? So you have you have uh, more um, more incidences of uh, of sort of catastrophic uh, events. So so storms are stormier. You know, like frosts right. are more virulent. Um, you know, it's uh, so when the frost does come, usually it's it it's it's worse off it's it's worse in so many ways you know than, than everything is intensified yeah absolutely yeah 
Um, hard to come out of it. You know, other times you put up whatever, you know, candles, boxes, and you could fight it off, but not in these current term conditions, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And then we, you know, our summer, our July is always, is always pretty rainy in Champagne. And then August gets, gets really hot. Again, it's, it's, it's these extremes where you have this really cool July and then you have this heat wave. You have this like enormous spike in August, which is kind of getting normal every year. Uh, but, um, but the thing is that it's, the summers aren't as cool as they used to be. So in the past in Champagne, you would get, you would get either mildew or oidium. So downy mildew or powdery mildew. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you would, you would very rarely get both. Uh, and today because of the warmer, uh, warmer overall temperatures, uh, you know, we really start to see both every year. And do they you know, require separate treatment uh, they or do. one thing can ward them off? It depends on what you do, I suppose. Okay. Uh, you know, but, but it does require more treatment. And right. uh, I mean, mil mildew is always a problem in Champagne. Uh, you know, mildew, down, downy mildew has historically been the, the most pernicious problem you know, in, in the Champagne right. region in terms of viticulture. And so right. that's something that, you know, we have to contend with, with every year. Uh, um, and that, you know, that certainly isn't changing. Right. But um, but then you know going back to extremes, uh, you know now we're seeing we're seeing August actually be you know be quite a problem. Um, you know just Too yesterday. Hot. Or, yeah, yeah. So um, and what does that do to the grape, the acid, the sugars? Harvest time. Well, certainly it accelerates sugar production and acidity falls. So, and, and very okay. rapidly, right? So, uh, so you have this, you have this very rapid accumulation of sugar. Um, uh, a lot of people make a big deal about, about acidity. Um, it's for me, it's, it's really not, it's, it's not the main issue in Champagne. Um, and, and Ch Champenois focus on it too much, uh, because of this, this, uh, you know, it's still this kind of seventies, eighties mentality, um, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's ingrained in them. Um, but, uh, but also with this extreme heat, um, you know, we see sunburn, uh, you know, there are grapes that actually shrivel on the vine. Uh, right. it, it changes the whole flavor profile of, um, you know, of, of these wines. Right. And accelerated growth in that way is not, it's not really desirable. You know, one of the things that makes Champagne what it is, is, is this long, cool growing season. And that creates a very particular style of wine. Right? That's, that's, that's what uh, brings you elegance and finesse. And that's also what brings you ripe grapes at a very low level of alcohol. So, right. so, you know, sometimes in Champagne, you know, people will harvest at 10 or 10.5 degrees and, you know, of potential alcohol. And you know, in California, you're looking at this and you're saying, well, they're just harvesting green grapes, right? Right. But, but 13, 14, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but the thing is that that's the key in Champagne. We're not harvesting green grapes. We're harvesting fully ripe grapes, but they only have like 10, 0.5% alcohol because of this long, cool growing season. Right. And so now with these heat spikes, this is upsetting that, right? To where, ah. uh, you know, to, to, um, to where now you have sugars really accumulating so fast that growers are forced to pick earlier. And uh, that changes flavor profile, certainly. Uh, that changes relationship between uh, sugars and acidity. Uh, that it's, it, causes you to completely rethink like you know your whole style of wine really that's a substantial challenge absolutely 
Um, you know, that yeah. that's unbelievable. Um, Peter, we have to take a quick break. Yeah. When we come back, we'll finish up on that. We're talking to Peter Liam. Um, Peter, as I mentioned earlier, is truly one of the great champagne minds and experts um, in the country. When we come back, um, Peter, I want you to talk a little about dosage, um, chalk, and a few other things that are very much connected to champagne. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back with Peter Liam. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Peter, Peter Liam. Um, Peter, you were talking about the effects of climate change and, you know, it's a timing thing. Um, and it involves the acids of the grapes, the sugar, um, when you have to pick, how you have to change and make the wines. Um, I think when you talk about the word sugar, I think you think dosage and could easily be one of the most misunderstood topics in champagne. Yeah, for um, sure. To a lot of people, it seems to have a negative perception, especially now with the movement towards natural wines and all that. You know, if it has sugar or dosage, it sucks. Um, so a couple things, because... I think you would agree with me that dosage is an important aspect of what champagne is. Um, explain quickly, you know, what dosage is and try to get a little into the hoopla, you know, that I'm talking about, um, if you can. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated subject and it's one that's severely misunderstood, uh, not only by consumers, but also by producers themselves, which is ironic. Uh, so, you know, dosage is the addition of, of sugar right at the end. So, so champagne ages on its lees and, uh, and, and on, the, on these dead yeast cells left over from the second fermentation. Champagne, uh, that will go on for several years, you know, whatever, however long. Um, it, it gets disgorged, so that means that the lees are taken out. And then a little bit of sugar, a little bit of wine is, is, is put back in, uh, and in that wine... Uh, you know, it's made this this solution with with a certain quantity of sugar. Wait, and, stop for a second. So the lees is that sediment or yeah, what's the word yeah, I'm so looking they're, they're for? Actual, it's, Byproduct from the grape or whatever. Uh, well, so it's actually physical dead yeast cells. So, dead yeast cells. So it's from so uh, you know the second fermentation is done by putting 
sugar and yeast into the bottle, uh, stoppering the bottle. And but then, you said the the old leaves are through the disgorgement are taken out, right? Yeah, because and the, then the, uh, the the dosage adding sugar is done. Yeah, so that's okay. That's sorry, that's a different process. Yeah, so, right. So it, in the second fermentation, uh, the yeast the yeast consumes the sugar. It creates uh, creates bubbles essentially, and um, and then the yeast die and the yeast. Uh, 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 remain in the bottle, uh, you know, through through this this period of aging. Um, so, those is there is there any um, effervescence before that? Adding that second, adding the no that sugar that's, that's that creates, what creates the effervescence right. in a bottle. Okay, I just want people to realize that. Yeah. So that yeah, that that's how the effervescence is created. Right. And okay. so, so this aging on the lees, uh, on these dead yeast cells, is a very important part of the champagne process. But those those lees need to be taken out before you sell the bottle, right? Because nobody wants to drink that. Right? So, right. so this process of disgorgement is the process of actually removing those from the bottle. And so then before, before the cork is, is, before the final cork is put back in, uh, you know, normally there's a little bit of sugar that's, that's uh, put in the bottle with it. Um, and that, that is the dosage. And so here's where you know the, all these misunderstandings come up because um, because we think we think of it as an additive, right? So uh, it's and and we think of it we think of it as perhaps an unnecessary additive because you know who wants to put sugar in? I mean, I don't put sugar in my coffee. Like you know, I I, I try not to put refined sugar in just about anything that I you know cook or eat. Um, you know, so why why would I want it in in my in my wine? And the problem is that that even producers themselves don't actually always know why it is that they're adding dosage. Um, you know, some people say that it's to balance champagne's high acidity. So, like the lemonade model, right? So, like you squeeze a bunch of lemons right. uh, into a pitcher, it's there's this ripping acidity, and you have to balance it out by putting some sugar in it, and then it creates something nice to drink. Right? That's so so. Uh, you know, some people are saying, well, this is the purpose of dosage. But it's not just that, in fact. It's not just to balance the acidity. Um, in fact, dosage in champagne, you know, in my book, I make the analogy of salt, where we don't always put salt in our food to make it salty, right? That's not, that's not the purpose of salt. Right. Um, you know, salt completes a dish. It expands other flavors. It interacts with other flavors, and it completes the dish in a way that that is very specific to salt, right? Like, I think you use beef as an example, how it yeah. enhances it. Sure. Uh, yeah. And and so even if even if then you know your dish doesn't taste overtly salty, it's it's completed in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise. And this is exactly what what the addition of sugar does. Uh, this this is exactly what dosage does in a champagne. And, so why? Go ahead. Well, and and so the thing is that like that because of this, uh, the specific amount of dosage is different for every wine, just like the specific amount of salt is, is different for every dish, right? You can't just, you can't just salt by numbers right? Right. Like when you're cooking. 
And right. by this, by the same token, you can't, you can't do this. You can't do that with champagne either. So, so, you know, people make a lot of, because dosage is measured in numbers, right? You know, people make a big deal about like, oh, three grams per liter or six grams per liter or nine grams per liter. And, you know, like, this is too much. This is too little. This is, I mean, it's just a number. Like, I mean, there's like a zero dosage movement, which is silly, right? Because of everything you said, you know, it's it's it's, like saying, you know, it's like saying I I just I don't eat salt. Like you know, my my food, like my my food is so good that it doesn't need salt, and you know maybe that's the case, but uh, uh, um, you know that's that seems like like a pretty silly statement, and and there are the thing is you know there are. Champagne. Because because every champagne is different, every champagne finds its balance point at, at, a, at a different level of dosage. Um, there, it's entirely possible that a champagne might be complete without dosage. So one champagne might need five grams, another might need nine grams, another one might need zero. But actually, I think that the ones that need zero are uh, they're much less common than you would think. By seeing how many non-dose wines there are, you know, in the marketplace, right. uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that there are a lot of a lot of zero dosage champagnes out there that should have some dosage, and um, you know, and it's not at all that I'm against zero dosage champagnes. I mean, when when I hit a good one, I love it. You know, it's right. Just just like, as a broad thing, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, as a category, like this yeah. doesn't make sense to me. Like, wasn't there a story where Salos um, added sugar when everyone thought he shouldn't, <laughs> yeah. and it helped the vintage, and it was a more ageable wine, yeah. which threw against you know common you know yeah, thought two, of all of that. Two thousand three was a really great example of that, where everybody said, "Oh, two thousand three, and it was a very hot year. Uh, um, you know, the, the alcohol levels were high. The you know ripeness was very high. Um, flavors were kind of roasted." acidity was low and everyone was like oh you know like if you know dosage is going to take this wine over the top like you know everybody wanted to to make non-dose wines uh you know in, in that vintage <laughs> and he was the reverse he said no all, the way that all of these components interacting in this wine like i actually need more dosage than usual in order to make a complete wine and he was right yeah um and the right guy to you know prove that Mm -hmm. um i wanted to ask you about another thing and we can get pretty nerdy on this and i don't want you to um because i have a thing called the wine list which you did the last time you're on i wanted Mm -hmm. to get your preferences on some wine so i want to leave a little time with that Mm -hmm. um but i think when people think of terroir and more specifically the soil and champagne I think everybody, you know, thinks chalky soils. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, my my studies show that it's not as simple as that. <laughs> you know, people think of Champagne as one region. Mm-hmm. Um, you are even controversial to this extent that you think that it's even more regions than the amount of regions <laughs> they say, um, which, like I said, is a whole discussion. But... Is chalk is chalk the predominant soil, or um, is that what makes champagne, or that's too simplistic? Uh, I mean, you know, short answer is yes. Uh, simplistic answer is yes. Uh, certainly, the majority of champagne lies on uh, lies, you know, on this Cretaceous chalk. Uh, you know, that's that's 
certainly the, the most famous soil type in Champagne. But Champagne is not only about chalk. And, and so the more you get into like the kind of nitty gritty details of Champagne terroir, the more you have to pay attention to things other than chalk. I mean, there's right. on, a, on a macro level, there's like, you know, the Cote de Bar in the Aube, which is not even on chalk at all. That's on Kimmeridgian. Uh, so it's the okay. same, it's exactly the same kind so of Kimmeridgian. So the AUBE is a yeah. region where chalk is not prominent. It's, there's, it, there is no chalk, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like literally, it's, it's, it's all, it's Kimmeridgian marl, which is, uh, which is an older soil, uh, you know, and it's exactly the same soil that's found in Chablis. Uh, but, you know, here they grow Pinot Noir and they, uh, and they, they put bubbles in it. And and it's amazing. It's great, Peter. But, you have a you have a very trained palate. This is almost a silly question, but I need to know. So you have a quality champagne from the Aube, and then you have another region that's predominantly chalk. Blind right away, you could tell. I not I necessarily or mostly. I'm not going to say you know that I don't make mistakes because I always do. Every day. I know that, but, but generally, uh, but yes, in general, in general, yeah, I think that the Obe has you know the Obe has a very distinct signature that uh, that I think you know that I, I think is 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 easily learned. Right. So it's it's just yeah, it's a matter of experience. And then in other regions where chalk is prominent, does it appear in different ways? You know, it's not on the surface; it's underneath. So it's yeah, older. so so a lot of the time. Uh, a lot of the time with chalk, it really depends on what lies on top of it and in what quantity. Ah. So, so like if you look at the Cote de Blanc, right? uh, the Cote de Blanc is, is when we talk about chalk and champagne, this is like the purest example. This is where, where there's very, very little topsoil. Sometimes there's only like 20 or 25 centimeters of topsoil on, on top. And then it's immediately into this bedrock of chalk. So, so uh, uh, I mean, this is part of the reason why why it's famous for Chardonnay because Chardonnay likes really chalky soils and and Pinot Noir really struggles in in, in that. But, uh, but it's perfect for Chardonnay. Um, But then, you know, Pinot Noir likes to have a little bit, uh, a little bit more clay in in the topsoil. And so when you look at like the great areas of the Montagne de France, maybe you have a little bit more topsoil. You have maybe like, you know, half a meter to a meter and, and, uh, and this, and the function of this topsoil is, is very important. You know, obviously the, the chalky bedrock is also important, but, um, because especially, you know, the roots are going, I mean, in a, if you, with quality viticulture, the roots are, are descending and going down into the chalk, right. but, uh, but that layer above the chalk is, you know, has, has very important functions as well. As you move farther West in the region, like going, uh, into the Western Montagne de France and then going into the Valley de la Marne. The chalk actually descends farther and farther below the surface. And so you reach a point in the Valle de la Marne, actually, where the chalk is really not significant at all, uh, where you're really talking about other soils. It, oftentimes, these soils are cal- cal- calcareous, so they can be various types of limestone. Uh, right. They can be you know, various marls and, and sorts of things. But uh, that chalky bedrock is so far below the surface that it's not really, you know, no, it's, it's not really playing really. playing. It's not playing a role like it does in in, in you know, the the heart of Champagne. Right. So yeah, so you know, short answer is like chalk. Yes, it's it is the predominant soil type in Champagne, but 
but it's very, very how it varies. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I'm shutting down our conversation on chalk and I, we, we, we have precious few minutes left. (laughs) So I want to do a couple things. One of the things I want to do is every week we ask our, uh, guests to participate in the wine list. You did this one four years ago, so Mm. I will compare notes. Everyone gets the same five questions. They've been the same five questions for over 200 interviews. They're fairly (laughs) simplistic, but our listeners love to hear, you know, what our uh, guests are drinking. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you tasting? Um... Seasonal changes. Give me a few things. Obviously, champagne, but what else? <laughs> uh, just in, in, you mean in general in the wine world? Yeah, I mean, and yeah. now, you know, the last weeks, month. Um, yeah, I think, you know, whenever I'm here in the States, because in the States, uh, you know, there's such a greater variety of wine than there is in France. Ah. So, so I'm always looking for things that I can't get in France. So, so like, I always love drinking Italian wine. You know, when I'm here in, in, right, in New York, you can get good access to it. Yeah, Northwest Italy, Northeast Italy, Sicily. Uh, yeah, um, it's all the interesting places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, German and Austrian wine. You know, something that's very difficult to find in France. Uh, so you know, I really like drinking that here. Oh, I'm so. Um, yeah, so I, I actually drink very little French wine, uh, you know, when I'm in the States. All right, so those, those are good ones. Um, Peter, next question. I asked you this uh, the last time we did the wine list. It's kind of the goofiest question on the list, but your favorite wine and food pairing. Hmm. I don't remember what I said last time, but... Uh, That's good. Either I, do I. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it wasn't champagne and oysters, but I'm going to check. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know. I would, I would maybe say like champagne and fried chicken. Uh, yeah, that's it's, a good one. Uh, I mean, fried food of any sort, you know, fish and chips yep. or like anything fried, even just potato chips, like, you know, it's, yep. it's fantastic it's with, with champagne, with but, uh, but good fried enough. chicken of all sorts, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it could be Southern fried chicken. It could be karaage. It could be like Korean fried chicken, like it right. could be whatever, but, uh, any but just the, the interaction of like fried food and champagne is amazing. I, I totally agree. All right. This is a very probably easy but very tough question for you to answer. And I don't want you to feel that, you know, it's exclusive. See if you can answer it. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Um, and when you answer it, whatever you answer is not number one or the only one, but just places that you admire. I mean, is there a place or two in New York that comes to mind? Is there a place in Champaign that just when you walk in, you know, it just feels great. They have the selection, the knowledge, you know, the vibe. Does anything Uh, come to mind? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, at home in Champaign, uh, you know, certainly Les Avisées, you know. What's um, the name of it? Les Avisées, which is, uh, which is Salosa's restaurant. Uh, uh, right on on the on the Jacques Salosa estate. Right. Uh, I've been going there since the very beginning, since they opened, and and you know, I mean, I'm a bit biased because you know I'm, I'm friends no, with them. I and, think and you're whatever, right but, on this um, one. but that place is amazing. I mean, the food is is fantastic. The wine list is amazing. The prices are reasonable, and uh, you know, I, I tend to go there a lot. Um, you know, in in France, uh, I mean, certainly you have like the grand wine list, like Le Criere, um, you know, but right. but um, but Racine, uh, you know, which is, is one of the best restaurants in, in 
France is is amazing. Uh, you have these these wine bars like Le Wine Bar is one of them, and Glupot is another. Uh, you know where um, you know where they have. Uh, I mean that's where winemakers go to drink. You know, it's, right? It's those two that's places. That's the stuff I'm looking for. You. Those <laughs> those are all good. I think you gave me one, two, three, four, five, six places. Say no more. I'll post those, and I'm happy to stay uh, in France. All right. Fourth question. And this question has morphed since uh, I asked it to you. The mm. question was favorite all-time wine. And I think when I started asking the question, I was fishing from guys like you um, who have access. What's the rarest, mm. most expensive wine, you know, you've ever tasted? I kind of can give a crap about that now. Yeah. I think the question is, what's that wine that had a significant impact in your life, you know, that was, you know, a realization, maybe something sentimental. Um, is there a wine or two that checks that box? I mean, there's probably a new one like every month, right? But, uh, but I'm going to say, I'm actually going to say 2013 Louis Roderick Cristal. Why? And this wine, so it, it's just, it's, it's just more about the story than the wine. Yeah. Well, so yes. Uh, so so you know this wine was just just released a few months ago, and um, okay, and so the wine itself is amazing. I mean, when uh, when I first tasted it, you know, I wrote, uh, "This is the best Cristal ever made," uh, which is uh, you know totally hyperbolic statement, but I think it's actually true. Um, and the you know the story behind it is that Louis Roederer is is really at the forefront of viticulture in, in Champagne. You know, I mean, they're, they are on the bleeding edge. And, and uh, since, like, so for the past 20 years now, uh, you know, Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon and his team have, have been working really hard at, at um, you know, going back to what we talked about in the beginning about, like, rethinking the paradigm, and, you know, rethinking, like, how, how we make Champagne, how we grow Champagne, what even is Champagne. Uh, you know, they've, They've been thinking about all of these questions and, and really trying to address this in a very meaningful way. And so in the vineyards, they're doing things that, you know, seem like they're from the future. And, uh, and, and so for Champ a bigger house too, right? Well, so what does it even mean? Like a big house, you know, <laughs> again, well, we, we discussed that a little, but, that they're capable yeah, of, yeah. you know, I mean, volume. yeah. So, you know, they, they make 2.5 to 3 million bottles a year, uh, you know, which in terms of negociants, uh, you know, is, is not large, it's not small, it's, but it, it's, there's a certain volume and a certain sort of, uh, I guess, it makes certain resources available to you when, you know, you have that kind of money. Um, right. And so they've been doing amazing things. And in Champagne, we... Uh, time moves very slowly, right? Because um, you do something and you're not, you're maybe not releasing this wine for another like seven or eight years or 10 years or whatever. And so you won't really know what the effects are for, for a while. We don't see, you know, we're only seeing now what people were doing, you know, back in like the 2000s. Mm. And so, you know, over time, like, you know, we've seen uh, Cristal, we've seen these changes in Cristal. You know, 2002 came out, which was amazing. 2004 was similarly amazing in a completely different way. 2008, uh, you know, 2009, I thought was really fantastic. But then, you know, in 2012, it's like, 
it comes out and it's completely different and and people are like wow like this is as good as it gets like you know this wine is amazing like uh you know now you know we're really seeing like what's happening at rotorer and then 2013 comes out and for me it even surpasses 2012 in this like in reflecting uh jean-baptiste's ideas in reflecting this viticulture and reflecting like everything that's been going on at the house for you know the previous like you know 10 to 15 years uh and and for me this wine just encapsulates encapsulates all of his philosophy you know in in, in this bottle and, and that's really powerful to see and, and that's the 2000, 2013 yeah fairly recent on crystal um all right last question and the question normally is best wine around 15 bucks 15 20 22 bucks a red and a white i'm going to abandon that question and <laughs> sort of ask you this where how what do we do to find the best value in champagne we know that like any wine you know champagne can be expensive and that the lower ends are you know you could find a pretty good 18 20 you know chablis or something or chardonnay hard yeah. to do that with champagne how do we figure the best value yeah so you know value of course doesn't always necessarily mean the lowest price right uh yeah but you know, quality, quality to value ratio. to price yeah. yeah uh so two things one Non-vintage champagne, I think, is the best value. Uh, is one of the one of the very best values that you can find in the wine world for truly age-worthy wine. Right. right. Uh, Explain um, why, because there's age wine blended in, right? Yeah. So it's you know it's I mean non-vintage wine is you know typically a blend of various of various vintages and and um, and so we think we think that well it's because it's designed to be more ready to drink upon release then you should drink it now and you shouldn't, you know, and it's like, there's no point in aging it. And in fact, it's, it's totally untrue. Like this, like any other wine, it's going to, it's going to develop with time. And in some cases it might develop a lot longer than you expect. I mean, I've tasted non-vintage wines that have been 20, 30, 40 years old, which you know have, have been amazing. And, and so, uh, you know, these are typically the, the lowest priced wines in, in a producer's portfolio. And yet, you know, even if you're just putting it away for a year or two, uh, you know, this is, this is like, I mean, this offers, you know, tremendous value in age-worthy wine. But then I often think, though, that like the real, the real value in a producer's portfolio is the regular vintage. It's because, so, so you know, a lot of times the, the standard portfolio of, of, uh, of a producer will have, there'll be the non-vintage wine, um, you know, which is the lowest priced wine. There'll be like the prestige cuvee, which is the highest priced right. wine and the most special, you know? And so people always want those. So the prestige cuvee tends to be priced quite high, the non-vintage quite low. And it's that one, it's that middle child, the regular vintage, which always gets kind of lost in the shuffle. And you can often find those at really good prices. Right. And, and so I, I think, you know, speaking of, you know, taking a wine, putting in your cellar and, you know, something that you can put away for 10, 15 years. I mean, those are, those are often, oftentimes, uh, you know, really great places to look. Those are, that's a great way to look at, you know, uh, 
to get the best quality and value. Um, I didn't mention, but I post all the answers on our social media mm-hmm. so our listeners, you know, can uh, have access to them. Peter, I have to wrap up. Like I said, offline, we probably could have discussed any one topic for over an hour, <laughs> but I'm happy with everything we discussed and all your insights. Um, let me do a quick wrap up and I want to get some info from you. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape nation.com. That's Sam at the grape nation.com. Subscribe to the grape nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. I can't make a better case for subscribing. When a guy like Peter Liam comes on, you want to know that by subscribing, it automatically pops up and it's ready uh, for you to listen. So please subscribe. Um, follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at Ruby, and on Twitter, we're at BenRuby. Um, but you can use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both to get to us. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll post Peter's wine list on our social media sites. Um, Peter, you do a lot of stuff, so try to answer this question with the right info. Where can we find you and all your work um, on social media and online? Let's start with the book Champagne. You can get that wherever books are sold. Support your local bookseller, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, my Champagne book is is still out there. Quick question on that. Um, Any... Uh, thought of a revision or are you working on any other book? Not, not at the moment, uh, not anytime soon. Okay. Um, um, it's a seminal, uh, book, so it's very timely. Um, mm-hmm. all right. Um, your website. Uh, so my website is champagneguide.net. Um, and social media wise, I'm, you know, I'm most active on Instagram where, uh, my handle okay. is, is just Peter Lieb. Okay. Um, but I'm on Twitter as well. All right. And Peter, one day I'm going to do a podcast on uh, deep sea and cave diving, and Mm -hmm. we will be able to talk about that a little more in depth. I'm sorry we didn't get to that a little. Um, I want to thank our guest, Peter Liam. Um, Thanks for coming on. Uh, Thank you, Sam. Kind of kicked the new year off um, with uh, champagne. And I appreciate that. Thanks to our engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.